Welcome to Founders Uncut, the podcast that goes beyond the romanticized founder journey to discover the moments of vulnerability and doubt that even the most successful founders face. I'm Maria Palma, General Partner at Kindred Capital. With me today is Charlie Dellingpole, founder and CEO of Comply Advantage, the world's leading data technology company transforming financial crime detection. Comply Advantage has raised over $100 million, has over 1.5 thousand clients, and is 444 people today. Charlie is also an active angel and recently became a new dad. But these are just the headlines. Listen to the real story on Founders Uncut. Charlie has founded three companies, but in his last company, he encountered a fraud situation that ended up having a personal impact on his equity. Let's hear about what happened and how he thought about navigating that sticky situation. So I think every lending company will probably experience this same situation and problem themselves at the same time. I guess um, Fallon Marketing was back in 2009 and had no prior lending experience, right? So we went out there. What we're trying to do was connect hedge funds, high net worths with small companies who had long data receivables to large corporations, right? So in the midst of the credit crisis, trying to build a company, and therefore, the reason why most VCs won't touch them is because if you want hyper growth, then that means a deterioration in loan quality, huge defaults, and you get the kind of situation that you now have with Klarna, whereby it's gone from $50 billion to $4 billion overnight. So no one really knows why that is. Is that because their loan book's destroyed or because they're incinerating cash? Who knows? But I think back in 2009, went out there, raised some money started lending money. And early on, we experienced a problem with fraud, right? So the company that we produced that money to had falsified some documents. And what we thought was a loan that was sold and no returns, actually sale and return. So we had X million pounds out there. Big chunk of that was to this one particular debtor. And we realized that actually, they were selling garden furniture to Amazon. And because it was a terrible summer, Amazon had returned X million pounds worth of those goods. So we then had to take possession of those goods and tell everyone who invested on the platform, we thought they were building a kind of high growth, fintech, lending, receivable, was actually, we were taking possession of the garden furniture. We then had to sell that over the winter and next year and then return the cash, right? And so I had to give up some of my equity to fund that. So I personally took the hit. We can't rinse all the people who have invested because we need to maintain our reputation. So I remember standing outside Silicon Roundabout on Featherstone Street and discussing the situation, how we'd handle it. And I think you have all these people who have read about you and placed their faith in you. And there's been this horrendous issue. And yeah, I guess the way it went about it was systematically trying to investigate what had gone wrong, attempt to resolve the situation by taking a personal hit in terms of giving up our own equity to fund some of the losses but ultimately, even though it took best part of 18 months, the lenders on the platform mostly made whole. The platform carried on growing and it's the success that it was today. But I think at the time, it felt like a kind of existential threat that would have destroyed the company. And yeah, it, it was kind of terrifying. And I think most lenders that you read about, particularly the kind of peer-to-peer lending industry that evolved back in like 2009, 2010, funding circle, rate setter, everyone had their own issues and stories of this type. And 
everyone now who's who's doing lending will have similar kind of terrifying issues they have to encounter and cope with, right? So I think there are just ways of mitigating it and ways of dealing with it and specifics of lending, but also the more generic points around systematically analyzing, working together as a team and collaborating what really got us through that and allowed us to avoid the fate that befell other peer-to-peer lending companies at similar times. I think the strength of the management team really shined through in those moments. So I was involved in my prior fund at RE with a company called Avant, which was a subprime lender and also Amount spun out of that. But that management team handled the downturn when funding circle and a lot of things were blowing up like incredibly well. And I think as a VC, I think about it because there's plenty of opportunities where a smart 21-year-old with no experience can create an incredible company. But also, like if you're going to do lending, you need to understand credit. There's certain industries where you, you have to understand what you're going into or hire it very quickly because although if not, you can lose your shirt. Like it, it is funny as an industry, if you think about it, because lending, insurance, like not every customer is a good customer. You need to underwrite them and they actually have, you have to have a good book of business to your point at the end of the day. few questions for you on that. One, so you're selling garden furniture in the middle of winter to recoup the losses, basically. Exactly. It was kind of overwintered in a warehouse in crew and then sold the following summer. So there were quite a few stories of peer-to-peer lenders who ended up thinking they were a kind of high-growth fintech platform who ended up taking possession of the underlying advertising billboard technology or whatever it was, right? I think only when you kind of go for drinks afterwards do you realize actually what happened and the actual dynamics behind it all, right? So yeah, I think because we were financing real world businesses with actual inventory or goods or sometimes it was software, sometimes it was exports to Azerbaijan or to um, Saudi Arabia or services. And I think at that point, you realize actually, there is a substantial underlying physical element to what we're doing. And getting involved in it was never the intention, but it's the practical reality of how you escape from that particular problem. A lot of people probably wouldn't have taken their own equity, right? Give us what would have been the other options besides using your own equity. And how did you think about making that decision? It sounds like, to your point, you were worried about kind of the reputation and protecting your investors. And and looking back, would you have made the same decision or is there anything you would have done differently? So specifically what happened was that I think maybe it was a quarter of the loan book at the time. And we had a pool of buyers like hedge funds, high net worths, people who had bid on the platform with the system. And so in terms of having loan experience, the idea was that the collective wisdom of those people on the platform would help inform our choices. In reality, I don't think most people spent the time or diligence to go through and really understand the company. The velocity of lending on the platform was more a function of the size of the loans rather than the actual underlying risk, right? So we felt that if we simply allowed that loan to default, those series of loans, then the kind of impact on the platform would be too material. And therefore, I personally gave up some of my own equity in terms of in order to make those investors whole rather than allow them to default. I think that was a very reputable thing to do. Did some of your backers from that experience come in on Comply Advantage as well? Yes, yeah, so everyone who invested. So when I raised money for Comply Advantage, everyone who was in the seed round had made money off selling their shares in Market Invoice, right? But then there was both the equity investors in the shares of market invoice, but also people who are buying the receivables, all the debt investors on the platform as well, right? So it wasn't just people in the equity. So, yeah. And did that fraud situation give you any inspiration for going into kind of fraud detection and money laundering for fintechs? Or how did you get the idea for Compliant Management? And how did you get to founding that company? Yeah, so precisely. So in running market invoice, you have hundreds of millions of pounds flowing around the platform. 
and you have no idea really if the person you're giving money to is a fraudster or is laundering money or will default. So there are problems around identity, fraud, credit, money laundering. And so having built from scratch all the operational controls for market invoice and really struggled with worrying if something goes wrong with money laundering, am I going to jail? If I give out a loan to a fraudster, will our buyers all be wiped out? I think that really exposed me firsthand to how bad the tools were in the industry for people who were running fintechs, how much opportunity there was to upgrade them and make them amazing. And also gave me a kind of firsthand view of precisely how they should work, what kind of systems and processes should be built. And so that kind of directly led me to Vivantage. Amazing. And you've got a large number of clients and employees and real revenue. This is your third time founding. How has the way you founded companies or even the way you lead companies changed over the years? Yeah. So I think Student Room was my first company and Market Invoice was kind of, in a sense, a direct adjacency to Student Room. So fundamentally, Student Room was like building a platform this time for students, kind of a social media, different databases of content. So I learned how to program myself. I built like 10 websites and those kind of coalesced into Student Room when I was like 16, basically. Market Invoice, I basically coded the first version of the platform myself over a weekend, right? So I knew it could work. We were live. And then it was simply about learning how to build a sales engine, a marketing engine, which we hadn't really built, given we were kind of more relied on things like SEO for Student Room. So there was direct adjacency, but I had to learn quite a lot of new things. I think part of the reason why I could go so hard and fast on Comply Vantage was because it was in many respects very similar to Market Invoice in that we had to build a sales team, we had to build a marketing engine, we had to build a core technology platform, which was a kind of hybrid of both Market Invoice and Student Room. And so I knew exactly on day one precisely what I needed to build in terms of the entire company, in terms of the stack, in terms of the strategies, in terms of the ways we could work. So I think every time I built a new company, I've tried to make it as similar in terms of the actual operational processes and systems and strategies as I've done beforehand, but then take it to a new market, really. And the market I was familiar with because I was exposed to it when I was running Market Invoice. And then similarly, I was Jake Morgan, TMT M&A, and we worked with companies like Reed Elsevier, Reuters. So I had a really strong understanding of the underlying businesses and the wider market. So it's important to do something where you know as much as possible about the actual market and how to build it. Yeah. And... What's the worst part about being a founder? And what's the best part about being a founder? So I think the best part is where you go from nothing to something. So I think my first term at Cambridge, like I turned on some functionality and suddenly it was making like, you know, 10 pounds a day, 20 pounds a day. And then it was making 2000 pounds a day, right? Without doing any work, right? That part of seeing something you spent a long time building suddenly overnight flip on and, and scale, super exciting. I think Similarly, market invoice where it went from like 1 million to 2 million to the volume just kept on scaling, basically. I think similarly, my advantage where you work really hard for a long time and then suddenly everything just cracks and you get huge adoption and you're kind of vindicated. Because I think a lot of building companies is always having an end vision for how a system or process or, or, or market should function and then relentlessly hammering away at that. I think... On day one, the phone doesn't ring. No one knows who you are. The product is still in a kind of infantile stage. And you just have to have the relentless conviction to hammer away at that until 
eventually everyone cracks basically in terms of the downsides like i think i've had friends who have built companies worked away for like eight years raised like millions and then in the past few months have to close them down right so like i personally haven't had that level of failure but you know i, I feel for them that they've kind of spent years of their lives building something that's now worthless right and they go away empty-handed right so failure is an orphan and it's done in silence right whereas everyone sees the survivorship bias people have done well but actually a lot of people don't do so well and most vc backed companies don't succeed right so yeah it's actually part of why we do the care share kindred i rarely talk about it because we don't you know promote kindred on here but we share carry so that if somebody's company goes under, they still make money from the other companies in the fund. But a lot of times if your company goes under, it wasn't that you backed the wrong founder. It's just whatever, right? It's the market timing. It's something changed in the ecosystem. It can be a lot of reasons why things fail that don't come down to the founder. And so we've actually had quite a few people on the podcast come and talk about the failure because to your point, it is way more in silence and it's less celebrated and out there. And, and, and honestly- But there's so much you can learn from it, right? So much you can learn from it. Yeah. It doesn't actually mean that you ran the company any better or worse in theory. It's just- yeah. Different markets, different timing is everything as well in a lot of these markets. And you've already founded a few successful companies. If this goes on to be successful, are you going to found another company after this? Yeah, so I've done like three now. If say like the company was sold tomorrow and acting something new, I think that's what I can have known what I enjoy, right? So I think my skill really is probably building companies. So in whatever form that takes, yeah, I think I probably didn't do another one. Yeah. You said something earlier I want to go back to, relentless conviction. So I think that relentless conviction it's really scary at the beginning, right? Now it makes sense. Everyone understands what Comply Advantage is, what it does, why. But like those early days when you're starting with a new idea and you have conviction, but nobody else does, how do you kind of prove to yourself that the conviction you know is there is actually there? And how do you get the right signals to tell yourself, yes, I'm building the right thing or no, I need to change what I'm building? Yeah, so a few different dimensions there. How do I know I know what I know? I like read Innovate's Dilemma, right? And you have kind of disruptive versus sustaining innovation, right? And so in particular in our market, we had Reuters, Dow Jones, Lexus, who have teams of a thousand analysts who manually compile the information. And that leads to like huge false positives, huge false negatives. Whereas the thesis I had was you can redo that via machine learning and AI. And like most AI systems, it takes a long time to build that system, refine it, scale it. So we now have 440 people building the system, right? And on day one, the system isn't good, right? Because it needs to be refined. It doesn't have all the functionality. There's huge amounts of the NLP, like the accuracy and recall, the algorithm needs to be improved, more training data. You need to build out all this functionality. So necessarily, it isn't good. But then the thesis was that it would move from being worse than the market to being parity with the market. And then once you have that initial momentum, it can be superior to the market. So it can be kind of market compelling, right? So, and that process was always going to take a long time. It's taken, it'll be nine years in March since I started the company. And I still feel like there's kind of 10 more years of technical improvements, right? So in terms of how I knew what I knew, I wanted the market to fund the platform rather than like investors fund the platform. And therefore I'm now in the house where I started the company and we had seven engineers downstairs in the garage. It had one salesperson. I wanted to expose the business enough to the market such that I knew it was we received well and it could find a place in the market. But I didn't want to expose it too much that we kind of sold a reputation or over-optimize on sales too soon, right? So the ratio was 
super hardcore engineering investment in the back end and tech and very limited sales such that we could perhaps target segments where they weren't particularly sensitive to the requirements for the improvement in the platform. Um, so um, I knew there was a niche, perhaps exposing it to like 1% of the market would be successful. But then over time, we could expand to new segments, new areas. But I think the market leading versus the investor leading, that's a really interesting point. I think there was a lot of people last year who took a lot of investor leading money to see if there's a market. And it's interesting that you thought about it in the reverse, right? Did you wait with those seven engineers until you felt like you had some confidence in the market before you raised money? We had a client. So basically, I just left Market Invoice, right? And I didn't want a co-founder. I didn't want investors, right? I was just like, listen, I'm just going to build a company on my own. I don't need like anyone to know what I'm doing. I'm just going to like, so I, I did it, but he kept it like very low profile, right? I just wanted to build a company and enjoy it, right? So, and so I, before I even started the company, I wanted the conviction in the market. So the guy from Barclays, who was our bank at Market Invoice, he worked in many different firms. He introduced me to 10 different companies. One was like a gold company in Birmingham with a fraud problem. And one of them was a company opposite the Saudi embassy in Mayfair. And they were sending money to Somalia, Afghanistan, Pakistan. It's problems with Al-Shabaab, Taliban, ISIS. And they had problems with Barclays in terms of Barclays weren't willing to fund the Somali corridor. And so I met Louis and I was like, hey, like I reckon having looked at your system that I can make it far superior and help you keep your banking license. And so he was our first client and he would pay us like 15 grand a month before we even launched, right? So before we even launched, I had a paying client, right? So I then built the platform, had it live. And then I put in my own money. I put in like, quarter million pounds on my own cash, right? Before we ever raised any money. And I think my plan was really not to raise any money, but then I had a friend who said, listen, like, I reckon you can raise like half a million for like 10%, right? Which is the seed round. And then after that, I did an uncapped convert, right? So a lot of other people were like, listen, there's no way I'm investing in an uncapped convert because it's crazy. And um, so I just raised the uncapped convert and a person in the uncapped convert who obviously wanted to convert introduced me to Bolton, Tim Bunting. And um, so I, at that point, I didn't need the money because I had tons of money and I could raise tons of money. So in terms of like needing VCs, I went from a point of like great strength, right? Yeah, that's great. And, you know, let's say you wouldn't need to raise money for the next thing you start. Would you still raise from VCs and why? So I think the relationship I had with like Tim Bunting from Bolton was like great. And he, you know, I, I think... Um, they gave us seven on 20, right? So they own like a big chunk of the company. But I think every month, like I go and see Tim and I always come back like energized and excited and with much more kind of tangible plan about how to build the company, how to think about things. He also brought on board at NED, who's been great. So I think that specific relationship has been great. And then we had Jan from Index, um, led the B, like 30 and 140 Index, fantastic firm. Jan obviously has, has invested in some of the, world's leading companies, Yan Index have been fantastic throughout. So those two relationships have been like amazing quality and hugely value add. If you're going to get someone who's awesome and really adds value both individually and as a firm, then it makes sense to do it, right? I think because of the validation and because of the, the actual tangible support and because also the velocity, right? Even though we raised $110 million, it's still taken us a long time to get to where we are. So it always takes longer. I don't think you really want to be in a company forever, right? I think in the end, 
you're going to get tired or bored and you want a team to inherit the company and you want other people to work with you, right? So I think I would never build a company that's 100% owned by me and has no other investors or team members. Like ultimately, you want what you build to become, to diffuse into society and to exist more broadly, right? So taking on a VC is an inevitable calling for scale and institutionalization versus like when you're 80 running it on your own and hoarding it like if what we're building is of real value and scale then ultimately you want to work with partners and other people yeah until you share the journey with and that's great but you do make the decision not to have a co-founder which a lot of people prefer to have a co-founder how do you think about that decision it's just easier for you to get off the ground when you know what you want to build the actual specifics of what we're building there was a kind of technical strategy behind it in terms of how we get the data which algorithms we could use, could the algorithms work? And therefore, like, I knew everything I needed to do, basically. And therefore, I could just go and get civic engineers and say, listen, I need to build this, right? So, it would, Whereas, like, I think now, if you're building, like, a large DALI model and the technology is so far out there, and had I known an engineer who was, like, world-class, who I could have called and said, join me on this, I would have done it. Yeah, which is about having the right person at the right time. I, I think, you know... It, Hiring a CTO is a huge task, right? And getting people who are world-class, even with the brand and resources we have now, is still very, very challenging. If you go and visit the, the Shazam CTO, right? He's like this amazing Cambridge lecturer. Like He now works at Apple, right? And how are you ever going to displace him from Apple, basically, right? Or all these people who are kind of world-class, right? I think getting them, particularly when it's you and your garage, is like very, very hard, right? So I would definitely have a co-founder if I thought they were amazing and worth giving up that. I mean, but on the other hand, I now have like a third of the company still. It's also a really important choice, right? Because there's a lot of programs that match co-founders. And I think, you know, there's a lot of reasons to have a co-founder. But also, if you don't have a co-founder that you really know and trust, a lot of the reasons why companies fail in the first year is just co-founder dynamics and people who don't know each other that well going to business together. So I had like 10 people that I knew extremely well from Market Invoice who invested in the seed round, right? And I knew their judgment was great. And in fact, they were kind of co-founders. So I, I can go and see them and get great advice, right? So, but then they couldn't necessarily impose an opinion upon me. Yeah, even the Tim Bunting relationship you described, right? Like you have people, you you have a community. It always takes a village, raising yeah, a kid or you know, starting yeah. a, a, a company. Um, which speaking of, you are a new dad. Congrats on that. Similar to you, your forthcoming child in August, right? Yes, I have one coming soon. Um, how has it been like work-life balance, being a dad, running a company? Are you surviving? So I think it's been far easier and more fun and than I thought it would be. I probably should have done it like five years ago, probably. Previously, I was traveling like to New York or Singapore or like like the whole time. And that obviously, you can't dial into the birth via Zoom, right? Um, <laughs> I, I would be divorced if that was the case, right? So I think there are compromises and constraints but i think holistically it has your retrospective biographical narrative you kind of i think having a family is great right yeah there's so much joy so you know just because you're not busy enough you also do a lot of angel investing so i think you have what 144 angel investments now or something yes exactly what prompted you to angel invest and has that changed the way you think about running companies or investing at all so what prompted me was like endlessly every person you've ever met sends you their friends right who are saying oh my friend's thinking of starting a company can you have coffee with them and i was like no sure thing like you have that and then a few of your friends like suddenly make amazing companies like so i was friends with will shu before he launched deliveroo 
and he sent me this deck and and of course I didn't invest because it was a way to incinerate cash right so the proximate reason I started was because of regret right and I obviously should have invested in that company and I guess the best one I've done so far is probably a team that used to work at my second company market invoice called Kodat right they raised off JP Morgan last month at like eight nine hundred million valuation the initial round was like a million dollars. So it's kind of returned everything, right? So I think there have been some successes there. But then also, a lot of the companies are kind of linked to my advantage. So they're kind of clients of mine who I get to know as part of the process, right? So if I go somewhere, I'll try and meet CEOs of companies, and they'll ask me to invest, right? So given that relationship, it's kind of hard to say no, basically. Yeah, you're just supporting good people that you know and trust, basically, right? Exactly, yeah. And, and then also, I guess during lockdown, everything was so boring. It was kind of like a hobby for everyone, right? As in (laughs) the worst vintage in history will be the lockdown 2021 vintage. And that's when I was most active, right? So (laughs) I think you meet a ton of great people. We have many mutual friends and it's a way to meet lots of like, you know, successful entrepreneurs who are reinvesting, see what's happening in terms of technology and society. And yeah, I think it's been a fun experience, right? So, but it is quite time consuming in terms of you kind of need to like, if you've invested, there is an implicit assumption that you will help the person. And when there's a challenge, you'll try and give some, some perspective. And so in a sense, you are buying yourself a job and it is very expensive because you are also putting money down for like a good 10 years, right? So it's a very expensive use of money and time, but ultimately it's probably fun and worthwhile, right? So it's as much the social component or like the human component as it is the financial return potential. And the kind of intellectual promiscuity of being able to live vicariously through a company or space you've never seen beforehand. And is there stuff from, because you've done so many that you've learned, like stuff that either went under or stuff where you, you learned something surprising from an angel investment? I've had two exits so far. One was um, Apple bought Credit Kudos and the second was um, Valvan bought Carter. And then quite a few like follow-on rounds whereby they become like a, a unicorn or I think you learn a lot about both hiring in terms of if you're a CEO and you're hiring senior team members, then it's the same framework for evaluating them as you are a founder in terms of their own ability to execute and deliver a plan. I think you learn a lot from the kind of quality of shareholder updates, right? In terms of those people who send hyper rigorous, very thoughtful monthly updates tend to do really well. Those you don't hear from or those like who, who kind of write terrible updates tend to do badly, right? So I think it's a lot about focus and a lot about the process of thinking through a company. Yeah, so I think you can gain a lot from reading the updates and trying to help them. Like, I think my biggest challenge now is when I wake up, I'm like, how can I move Comply Vantage forward? Whereas I think most investors, there's an allocating time to all 143 companies, most people don't want help and don't want you to turn up and start like getting involved, right? And, and similarly, it's kind of hard to know how best to help. I love to do more to help all the companies, but then there are limits to time and, and resources. Yeah, you're pulled a lot of directions, but also just the fact that they can call you and get some advice on key issues, I think is a huge advantage, right? Because you've been through a lot of it yourself. One thing I wanted to ask you, because it's specific to fintech, but you mentioned earlier kind of lending and the pros and cons of lending. And I think we're going to see a lot of that in the, a market downturn here. But I think a lot about multiples for fintech, right? Because they've gone up and down a lot in the last few years. And I've seen companies that I thought would trade like a tech company, trade like a bank, right? Trade like an asset book. And companies that I thought would trade like an asset book, trade like a tech company. How do you think about 
the multiples when you're in the space and what types of businesses trade at kind of tech versus traditional bank multiples? If you look at like Tiger, right, you think that they're kind of very sophisticated in terms of like their analysis, they're a hedge fund, but I think they kind of use very simple heuristics like net retention rates, CAC LTV, like to, to predict the growth persistence. So I think there are kind of rough heuristics you can use to tell or kind of predict growth in advance, right? They give you a good indication of where the business will be going forward. I think you've seen modern treasury raised last year at a billion valuation with a million of ARR and other companies were kind of priced as a discount to that, not to mention the specific names that we know about, right? So I think for us, we raised last round like 640. So that was only like a 30 times multiple, right? So I think other companies have expanded their multiple even during the pandemic from like 30 to 50, right? Yeah. But I think at some point we're starting to see the backside of that, right? I think at some point the music stops, like most things in the public markets, which usually you eventually get to somewhere, don't ever trade at 100x multiple. Yeah. And I think recently, past few months, I think, I think you've seen a lot more like structure, which hasn't been around for a long time in terms of like three times participating preferred, tons of very distressed companies that need cash immediately that are burning far too much. So I think often when you hear the multiples being announced, you don't see the operational metrics, you don't see the precise drivers of the valuation, you don't see how much is pref stack or common. And so it's very difficult to get a holistic understanding of what the actual multiple is, and what the actual valuation is. So it's very difficult to draw broad generalizations. And often it's because they're able to get one particular investor. Like, so obviously with venture, it isn't the market pricing, it. it's one person's conviction pricing it. And therefore, if you can get someone who loves your company and is willing to pay top dollar for it, then that can get crazy multiples. And the multiples don't really matter as much at the earlier stages, right? Like once you get to growth stage, they do matter. But at the beginning, pricing it to a real multiple is kind of hard anyway. It's really more about dilution than it is. I mean, I invested in a company pre-seed, pre-revenue last year at like, a, I think it was like 16 on 60, right? Because the, the CEO was friends from a business school with a VC on the West Coast. I think another company pre-seed, pre-revenue, first round was like 40 million. Another VC came in like nine months later, no real progress had been made at like five times the price, right? So you got a pre-revenue product company raising it like 200 million, right? So there is a lot of like seeming insanity, right? Like if those companies want to then raise the next round, right? Like it'll take them a year to build a product and it's kind of how are you not going to have a down round? That's the problem. Then you have to grow into that valuation, right? And then if you don't, that's what we're seeing a lot more of this year or probably will be is like down rounds and that's how you lose your equity and you kill equity for the employees. So I think you do have to be mindful of both sides of that equation for sure. We're going to run out of time here, but I wanted to ask you, you know, if you were giving advice to someone who was just starting a company for the first time and never done it before, what advice would you give them? So I think if you look at many of the best companies, they spend a long time on the initial market research phase, building precise conviction, right? And they talk to a lot of people, they can really do thoroughly research. And I think many first-time founders, perhaps you're kind of, you quit your job or you spent like months researching, trying to find the right idea. And there's doing things right in terms of correct operational procedure, hiring good people, but then also doing the right thing. And for me, if you're a first-time founder, what matters more than anything is the kind of quality of the initial project the thoughtfulness of the plan, how you will begin. And I'd much rather spend an, an extra like year finding the right thing rather than committing to a particular initial like staging point and 
finding that's the wrong place to go. You, you can't really start somewhere and get going and then move somewhere else. I think the, the pivots are very painful. So I think there's no real substitution for really building amazing conviction. Like the people I talked to last night, I had dinner with seven CEOs, right? Who all built like multi hundred million billion companies. And I think all of them had huge conviction on day one about what they were building because they'd done real research and really new problem. So it's quite difficult to tell if you're like being pitched on a seed stage how well I know the problem, but at least for my advantage, like I knew like on day one and I had huge conviction, which is why I spent the time doing it. So yeah, it's also kind of this concept of founder market fit, right? Sometimes you've experienced problem yourself, but even if you haven't, you've gotten some way to like deeply, deeply understand it. I actually also like to ask people how many customers they talk to because you can tell a difference, right? Between the person who's like, I had 20 conversations and the person who's like, I've had 250 conversations and I've tried doing it myself seven different ways. And you know, there's different ways to get to know a problem. Precisely. Thank you so much for your time today. It is great to be here with you and I'm really excited for everything in, in the future for you. Awesome. Awesome to speak, Ray. Thanks, Charlie, for taking the time to be with us and share your story. If you're looking for a financial crime detection platform or looking for a great company to join, check out complyadvantage.com. If you want more stories like this, go to kindredcapital.vc forward slash founders uncut. And as always, if you're a founder and the journey is hard, You are not alone and it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. Being a founder is just hard. Even the most successful founders face fear, doubt, and unbelievable difficulties that never make the headlines. Thanks for joining us today. And if Charlie's story resonated with you, join us for more stories like this on Founders Uncut. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.